Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled, Understanding the Persistence of Sleep, Unconsciousness, and was given by Matthew Files on July 10, 2021, via Zoom. Matthew has facilitated spiritual groups that support people to look deeper into their process, formulate their own questions, and become responsible for their choices. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Matthew Files. I think that actually any topic, whatever it is, has no depth at all unless you give it depth. So it's not, as, as a speaker, it's not necessarily up to me to give it depth. Because depth can also be in the listener. It's like, what do you do with what you're hearing? If you're taking what you're hearing and translating it into a language that you're already familiar with, you know, like you hear some spiritual idea and you go, oh, yeah, that's just like the Buddhists talk about. Then you may not actually be hearing what the speaker's saying because you're putting it in a framework that you're already familiar with. So one of the ways of allowing a topic, words, to go deeper is not to put them in the box that you're already familiar with and just allow them their own free passage through your psyche, through your body, wherever they happen to land. But if you're putting them in the box of what you already know, juxtaposing something new or unfamiliar against what you already know, there's much less chance of that having any depth to it. I wanted to ask two things of you all tonight and maybe more later, but one is not to believe anything that I'm talking about tonight. At the same time, don't disbelieve any of it. Because that's generally what we do. We believe or we disbelieve based on who we take ourselves to be. So neither believe nor disbelieve, if that's even possible. I don't even know if that's possible, but I'll ask it of you anyway. I know it's pretty hard and it may not even be possible, but let's try it out. Let's put the request out there and see if it works. I'm going to start with a story. Well, it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a little thing, a little skit, actually, a verbal skit that I picked up along the way from an album of Down East Humor, an album from Bert and I. Anybody else know Bert and I? It's Down East. Down East is basically an area of the coast of Maine. And I'm going to, the way they did it uh, on the album was with very... Thick down east accent. I'm going to see how that works. Let's see how this goes. 
So, one evening, old Doc Fenderson was sitting on his porch like he liked to do, the way he liked to do on a nice summer's evening. And he was sitting there and rocking, and he heard a sports car coming down the road. Came down to the past his house, went down to the end of the street, and he could hear him turning around and coming back the other way. Came back the way he was going, and he turned around once more, came up to Doc's driveway, pulled in the driveway, and he sat up in his convertible sports car and said, which way to East Vassalboro? Doc sat forward in his rocking chair like he would do when he was answering somebody's question, and he said, well, you go back the way you was going, you go down to the old schoolhouse and take a left at the old schoolhouse and go down. No, no, that's not right. No, he said, go the other way, the way you just headed when you came first came into town, and you go down by the old pottery place, Marge's Pottery. Take a right down there, go past the old, no, no, that's not going to work either. He said, sat back and he said, come to think of it, you can't get there from here. Huh, nobody left. Jesus. <laughs> That's one of my favorites. Okay, maybe I didn't do it well. I'll have to do it again. No, just kidding. So you can't get there from here. It sounds like a joke, but from where we're sitting and where we want to get to, spiritually speaking, I don't mean like the bathroom or the kitchen. <laughs> I mean, spiritually speaking, you can't get there from here. Not where you're sitting. Because of the place that we live life from. As human beings, one of the main places that we live life from is the context of survival and scarcity. So the thing about survival is like we live from the position that basically everything is a threat to who I take myself to be. And it can be on any, every level. It can be a physical level. It can be an emotional level. Whatever we identify with as me, we're coming from that place of survival. It's called a given of human incarnation. It's the primal imprint somewhere around birth maybe even before so all the problems of life that we have what we call suffering it seems to me like one of the main reasons we get on a spiritual path is because we're tired of suffering and we're looking for a way out we read the books we read the dharma we read about non-dual realization ooh sounds really good sounds like where I want to go. The thing is, you can't go there from where you're standing, from the position you're in, from living from the context of survival and scarcity. So scarcity, what is scarcity? Scarcity is basically 
living from the point of view, the position that there's never enough of anything, especially the things that are important in life, like love, compassion, attention, uh, generosity, all those important things. There's not enough. We don't have enough to give, and I can't get enough. There's that hole that we're trying to fill with stuff, with experience, you know, particularly spiritual experience or just regular human experience of love and relationship and connectedness and all that. And somehow, as human beings, we just can't seem to get enough. There's that one more thing, and maybe it's information. Maybe you come to a talk like this thinking, oh, if I just have one more piece of information, it'll click, and this knot in my gut will resolve itself, and I can finally relax around life. I was thinking yesterday how there's this uh, subtle spiritual trap in aging, because in aging, you know, as you get older, it seems like life evens out. You become a little less neurotic, a little less attached to things. Life is working. You've figured some things out, like how to manage your money, maybe. Stuff like that. Now your diet works after you've been struggling with it for 30 years. And so life works. You go, oh, yeah, life works. Well, the thing is, life has always worked. Right from the beginning. And in that sense, nothing has really changed, except maybe things have gotten a little easier. And when they get easy like that, it's easy to start thinking, oh, I have achieved. I have achieved something like enlightenment, the big E. Does anybody even use that word anymore (laughs) in their usual vocabulary? So what I want to encourage everyone to do is to uh, stop seeking. Stop trying to attain. Stop trying to get better. Stop trying to fix yourself. Because the place we do that from, which is the place of scarcity and survival, there's an assumption that something's wrong. There's an assumption that something's wrong and it has to be fixed. But what if there's nothing wrong and there's nothing that has to be fixed? There's nothing broken. Or if it is broken, leave it alone. Stop trying to fix it. But so much of what I perceive as the spiritual path, what I see is so much of trying to attain, trying to fix, trying to get better, trying to be more spiritual. How spiritual do you want to be? How spiritual can you be? What's the ultimate? Is there an ultimate? Is there some sort of ultimate in spirituality? Is there actually a place to get to? Nirvakalpa Samadhi. I've heard the term. It's supposed to be a really big thing. I have no idea what it means, but I thought I'd throw that out there as a something to think about or an ultimate path. I mean, the only ultimate path is the one you're on, really. So I think there's ideas about one path being better than another path, or there's higher paths and lower paths and all that division-making that we do 
internally and we do it externally in conversations. Something to read. This is good. Probably a lot of you have heard this already. I'm not actually sure where it's from. I'm not sure who it's by. By Gurdjieff or Spensky or one of those cool fourth way guys. So because the title had this consideration of sleep in it, this is a fantastic description of a sleeping human being. You have plenty of money, let us say. You live in luxury and enjoy general respect and esteem. The people who run your well-organized business are absolutely honest and devoted to you. In a word, you have a very good life. Perhaps you think so yourself and consider yourself wholly free. For after all, your time is your own. You are a patron of the arts. You settle world problems over a cup of coffee. And you may even be interested in the development of hidden spiritual powers. Problems of the spirit are not foreign to you, and you are at home among philosophical ideas. You are educated and well-read. Having some erudition in many fields, you are known as a clever man, for you find your way easily in all sorts of pursuits. You are an example of a cultured man. In short, you are to be envied. In the morning, you wake up under the influence of an unpleasant dream. The slightly depressed mood disappeared, but has left its trace in a kind of lassitude and uncertainty of movement. You go to the mirror to brush your hair, and by accident drop your hairbrush. You pick it up, and just as you have dusted it off, you drop it again. This time, you pick it up with a shade of impatience, and because of that, you drop it a third time. You try to grab it in midair, but instead, it flies at the mirror. In vain, you try to catch it, smash. A star-shaped cluster of cracks appears in the antique mirror you were so proud of. Hell, the recordings of discontent begin to play. You need to vent your annoyance on someone. Finding that your servant has forgotten to put the newspaper beside your morning coffee, your cup of patience overflows and you decide you can no longer stand the wretched man in the house. Now it's time for you to go out. Taking advantage of the fine day, your destination being not far away, you decide to walk while your car follows slowly behind. The bright sun somewhat mollifies you. Your attention is attracted to a crowd that has gathered around a man lying unconscious on the pavement. With the help of the onlookers, the porter puts him into a cab and he is driven off to the hospital. Notice how the strangely familiar face of the driver is connected in your associations and reminds you of the accident you had last year. You are returning home from a merry birthday party. What a delicious cake they had there. This servant of yours who forgot your morning paper ruined your breakfast. Why not make up for it now? After all, cake and coffee are extremely important. Here's the fashionable cafe you sometimes go to with your friends. But why have you remembered about the accident? You had surely almost forgotten about that morning's unpleasantness. And now, do your cake and coffee really taste so good? You see the two ladies at the next table. What a charming blonde. She glances at you and whispers to her companion. That's the sort of man I like. Surely none of your troubles are worth wasting time on or getting upset about. 
Need one point out how your mood changed from the moment you met the blonde and how it lasted while you were with her? You return home humming a gay tune, and even the broken mirror only provokes a smile. But what about the business you went out for in the morning? You have only just remembered it. That's clever. Still, it does not matter. You can telephone. You lift the receiver and the operator gives you the wrong number. You ring again and get the same number. Some man says sharply that he is sick of you. You say it's not your fault. An altercation follows, and you are surprised to learn that you are a fool and an idiot, and that if you call again, the rumpled carpet under your foot irritates you, and you should hear the tone of voice in which you reprove the servant who is handing you a letter. The letter is from a man you respect and whose good opinion you value. The contents of the letter are so flattering to you that your irritation gradually dies down and is replaced by the pleasantly embarrassed feeling that flattery arouses. You finish reading it in a most amiable mood. I could, could continue this picture of your day, you free man. Had anybody heard that before? Yeah, okay. That was, that's, that's a great piece. The sarcasm that he has in there of you free man, because he's clearly not a free man. Although in form, it could look like he's wealthy. He has an easeful life. He's got a chauffeur and butlers and it's the life. He's clearly not working. <laughs> I mean, doesn't have a job. <laughs> um, but he's not free. He's completely a slave to his inner construct, his inner conditioning, a total slave to it. He's looking at one thing on the street, and all of a sudden he thinks of coffee and what a reward for this morning. I'll go have my coffee and cake. And it's just like one thing after another. To me, what that story evokes is the absolute need for self-observation to really take a good look at ourselves so that we're aware of this very type of thing. I mean, I read this and I go, oh yeah, that's me. Change a few things in there. But it's the same story of unconsciousness. And everybody's story of unconsciousness, I think, is exactly the same. It just has different bits to it. So self-observation of what we're doing, what we're thinking, what we're feeling. And yet at the same time, I find myself interested in what's underneath all that. The underneath of why the unconsciousness? Why is that even there? And what does that actually stem from? Because that description, that story, that's all surface. That's a description of form, of the form through which unconsciousness expresses itself. But I'm interested in what's underneath the form, why that form arises, and the infinite number of forms of unconsciousness. To me, it goes back to what I was talking about before, about survival and scarcity. To me, that's what underlies all the activity of the man in the story, scarcity and survival. Like everything about his life and who he takes himself to be. When we function from that context of scarcity and survival, everything that comes our way gets interpreted at some level as a threat to that existence. 
And you can see it in the story when he's, when he's having his bad mood, but then he gets a letter, you know, which changes his whole mood and covers over what was about to come to the surface. So the thing is, can we actually do anything about that? And I think we can, not to change it, but to see it, to look at it. So is unconsciousness inevitable? Is it inevitable that we suffer for the rest of our lives? I don't think so. But anything we try to do, if we're living under the assumption that we actually are suffering, anything we're trying to do to alleviate the suffering is actually going to perpetuate it. You know, the, the old Chinese finger cuff thing where you stick your fingers in these, there are these woven things and you put your fingers in, then you try to pull your fingers out and they don't come out because as you pull, it tightens up. We had them when we were kids. We'd play with them and put them on your whole hand and get your hands stuck together and that kind of thing. But that's what trying to do something about the problem is like, what we perceive as the problem is like. The more we struggle, the tighter it gets. So the more we struggle with ourselves, the tighter that thing that we're struggling against gets. So what are you going to do? Relax. Did somebody say how? Huh. Can't you change your thinking though? Well, how do you mean? If you're thinking a little bit too much negativity, try to change it to more positive. I that work? Temporarily and superficially, yes. But basically, the way I look at it, it's like putting a coat of paint over rotten wood. That's what positive thinking is. Changing your thoughts to make them positive rather than negative. I've been doing this, um, these little workshop gathering things based on the, the work of Peter Block recently. I don't know if any of you know who he is. He's a community builder. And he works with what he calls the six conversations. And one of the conversations is the gift conversation. And I came across a word he used, which is being gift-minded. And it just struck me like being already gift-minded. And I went, yeah, I am not gift-minded. I don't approach life gift-mindedly. So what I mean by being gift-minded is appreciating the, the gifts of other people and also appreciating, understanding my own gifts that I bring into life. I just don't think that way. I'm always looking for the problem. <laughs> I'm always looking for what's wrong. That is not gift-mindedness. <laughs> but to just try to change my thinking into gift-mindedness is not the point. Because that place that that's coming from is much, much deeper than just thinking. Much deeper. Because that comes from the whole context of survival and scarcity. So the thing about scarcity, you know, is that's where a lot of positive thinking ideas come from. Like if you don't feel like you don't have enough money and go and you post these little post-its around the house to say, I am wealthy, abundance, this and that, it really doesn't work. Not in a real way, because the whole context of the approach to life from scarcity can't be undone by thinking differently. 
So that's what I think about thinking. <laughs> There's plenty of room for disagreement. Sometimes when I just stay on the positive road, things start getting better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely things that can be done with positive thinking, for sure. No doubt about that. At the same time, to change one's context from the context of survival and scarcity, I don't think positive thinking can do that. Although you might get money, even like this man in the story that I was reading, he clearly had money. He had a big car with a chauffeur that followed him while he walked. That's kind of cool, you know? So if the day is too hot, you just get in and turn on the air conditioning. Home, James. Take me to the cafe, please. Thank you. Did you bring the newspaper? <laughs> what, what strikes me about this whole thing is that when you speak of survival, you know, a person might naturally assume that we're talking about uh, physical survival, you know, the body. But we're, we're talking about survival on a lot of other levels as well, right? Like survival of one's uh, self-image. I mean, Yes. Self-image, self-identity, who one takes oneself to be. Like if you think about all the positions that you take, I don't mean sexual positions. I just, (laughs) I, I had to. (laughs) So the positions one takes about things in life, and we all have positions that we take about ourselves. I'm smart. I'm dumb. I'm wealthy, I'm poor. We have this, all these positions, you know, and we have political positions that we take, whoever it is. Yay, JFK. I'm a JFK fan. He's dead, but I always liked him, even though he died when I was 10. But anyway, we have positions, and we have positions about the spiritual path, about this is the best practice. No, this is the best practice. This is the ultimate practice. No, this is the ultimate practice. And I like cats. No, dogs are better. That kind of thing. Positions we take. And that's suffering. All those positions that we take, that's suffering. All those positions are what keep me in place. This identity, who I take myself to be. So can you have no position? I'm not sure. I don't really know. I don't think you can have it as a position. I mean, you can have it as a just another position. Oh, yeah, I'll take the position of having no position, which is sort of like the, the position of the spiritual fop. <laughs> the one who's above it all by having no position and being, yes, you know, nothing bothers me. I'm completely detached from it all. Namaste. I love you all. <laughs> theory that in some situations scarcity around money is really just a way of avoiding some deeper scarcity issue that I'd much rather not look at or that anyone might not want to look at like scarcity of love or something it's much less scary to look at a scarcity of money and worry about that and try to fix it do things about it uh, and have your attention there that's much less scary than looking at um, a feeling that love is scarce yeah right as you're talking, I was thinking of a time when I had a, I had a life coach for a little period of time and for a, a project I was working on. And I had to check in with her and, you know, 
every time we met, I'd write up a list of things that I was going to do for the week. And, and then it came down one day to like, it's like, did, well, did you do this and this? And I was like, no, <laughs> I didn't do it. And she was like, well, how come? And I, I was like, I was overwhelmed. I was just so feeling so overwhelmed. And she said, describe overwhelm in terms of bodily sensations. And when I started to break it down into a description of bodily sensations, the overwhelm disappeared. So it was very clear that all the bodily sensations, there was mental gyrations as well, but they were like random accumulations that came together that I labeled, this is overwhelm. So when they all come together in that configuration, it has this big neon sign that says overwhelm. And here's what you do when you're overwhelmed, which is basically nothing. <laughs> That's my approach. But when I broke it down into bodily sensations, it's like the whole thing just evaporated because it was like, yeah, sweaty palms, not in the gut, dizziness, and all that kind of stuff. Something that was very significant for me as a, as a process of self-observation as a process of, of observing what's actually happening in the body at, at any given time. Um, I think it might help if you, if you uh, define sleep, ah. because uh, I hear a lot of cross currents in the dialogues here. That, um, and I think we need a more, a, clear definition about what sleep is so that we can be talking about the same thing at the same time, <laughs> if you know what I mean. I do know what you mean, and I was hoping that that story I read was the perfect definition. <laughs> so I wouldn't actually have to make a definition. Like, to me, that story was so self-explanatory about sleep. I'll turn it back on you. What's your working definition? To, to uh, assume that me, who I am, is this body-mind matrix and all of its conditioning. I mean, it's culturally reinforced. It's reinforced by all our upbringing. It's reinforced genetically even. It's, there are so many ways that who we think we are is reinforced and continues to be reinforced throughout our lives, the, the lives of the body and mind. And uh, to be asleep is to assume that this body-mind is who I am. And that is the context of survival and scarcity. The story illustrated even people who are, quote, successful in life are still completely reactive to their conditioning. Mm -hmm. But that has nothing to do with being awake. That, that story is about a man who's not awake from sleep, who is a condition, in the condition of sleep. But sleep is essentially who I am, is this body-mind. What makes you assume that you're asleep? I've experienced being in, in the condition of what I would call a wakefulness because it fits a description I've read and heard about there's this perennial philosophy, it's called, that yes. has a consensus about what it's like right. not to be asleep. But have you, have, you, have you proved it to yourself? 
to me, perennial wisdom is all secondhand information. The experiences that I've had match that perennial wisdom. And there's so, so much consensus throughout the millennia and in all the different non-dual traditions, I would say. There's such consensus and my own experiences, even though they've not been what I would call abiding, they have convinced me that that's the truth, that that, that is awakefulness. That, that is the condition of being awake from sleep. In the title of the talk, it was about persistence of sleep. So in your own case, why does sleep persist? You know, there's no answer to that because um, it's one of these imponderables that the Buddhists would call it imponderable. On the one hand, I'm not asleep. As soon as I say I'm asleep and start to tell you why I'm asleep, I've already fallen into the trap of sleepness, of being asleep. And that's not accurate. It, it's, it's beside the point. I mean, if I, if I never wake up in the, in the universal, you know, perennial wisdom sense, if I die and never match that description, that is fine. That's perfectly okay. And that's being awake. <laughs> so there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Some, I saw some other hands up before. For me, when I self-observe, I see that my attention is always on myself. I think that that's just how mind works. Like every single thing that happens, it's in relationship to me. And I see a very narrow spectrum of reality. I focus on one thing in relationship to me, and there's so much that I don't see that's going on all around me all the time. That's how I'm understanding sleep now, is that I'm like a somnambulist or something, <laughs> walking around. Because I really pondered this for some time, like, what does that mean to be asleep? And I feel like we all have times when that's just out of the way. And I'm just kind of free, relaxed, and see clearly. It's not necessarily anything I did, it just kind of happens. For me, that's a reference point for what not being asleep would be. Somebody else had a hand up, a couple of hands up. Yeah. One belief that I have about myself is that I, I have weak attention. And so there are exercises and tasks that I can engage in to help on this, making attention stronger. And really, when we talk about making attention stronger, what I'm really saying is that I'm trying to make it longer. When I'm in an exercise, uh, I might be sensing my breath. It's an inner presence that I have. That's where my attention is. And so momentarily, I am in that attention. I am in that presence. And I can hold it for a few seconds. But invariably, always, always, I get taken away by some distraction of sorts. And it'll go maybe sometimes 20 or 25 seconds. And then all of a sudden, it's like this big thing that goes off in my head is where have I been? 
And then I come back to my original intention of that attention again. And in a few seconds, again, it goes away. And my, that's the way it is for me. Yeah. And to me, that's the underneath of sleep. Trying to build my attention is, is where I need to be. But it's hard to build. It takes effort. And I guess that's why they call it work. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to do this. And because when I do these exercises and I see how easily I am identified one way or another constantly, that's what convinces me that I'm asleep. Mm -hmm. And I was made that way. (laughs) I was made that way. Um, I don't blame God for that. That's just the way I was made. And so here I am trying to work with these things trying to build up that attention, trying to not be as asleep. And speaking of God having a sense of humor, I'm wondering if you have a sense of humor about your relationship to your lack of attention. I try to have a sense of humor about it, but I get impatient sometimes. I get annoyed with it, but... I guess I could practice more patience with that and know that God's on my side. He joins me in all my activities, whether they're really sensing the breath or whether he's so taken away by this last impression that came across. I need to practice that more, what you suggested. That's, that's good that you mentioned that again, I think. Not be quite so serious about it. Have a sense of humor about this. This this way that I am inside myself, that we all are inside ourselves. That doesn't mean that, that we need to stop working, though. I need to keep no. working. No, I'm not I'm not suggesting stopping working. I'm suggesting overall, not just in this conversation with you, but in general, shifting our relationship to how we work, not what we do but our contextual relationship to how we work so that the struggle to have more attention is not like those Chinese finger cuffs that just keep getting tighter the more you try to have more attention. And that the more they tighten up, the more difficult it gets to actually have more attention. If you're coming from that place of struggling like that with attention, then you'll pretty much just perpetuate the loop. Would that be a good time for self-observation then? Yeah. To me, all time is good for self-observation. But I think we can be very selective about when we self-observe. I find it's mostly when things are not going well. When things are going well, it's a Saturday morning in the fall, and I've just walked out a method coffee with my favorite latte. The wind is just right, and like life is good. Am I going to self-observe? I don't think so. It's just not going to happen. But when, when the bills aren't getting paid or something's going wrong on the job, something like that, or... 
I'm in the middle of a tete-a-tete with my wife. <laughs> you know, I'm going to, well, maybe I won't self-observe then. She'll make me. Then I'll self-observe, you know, when things are not going the way I want them to go. Because I figure, oh, if I self-observe, things will get better. Isn't that the point of self-observation, to help make life work? No, actually it's not. That was sarcasm. So yeah, to me, any, any time is good for self-observation. There's not one time or any particular incidences that are better than others for self-observation. Something you haven't mentioned that to me more relevant is not self-observation, but self-remembering. Can you language a brief distinction between the two? Self-observation is like a a mental noting, a a mental stepping back and seeing. Self-remembering is a self-sensing of the body. The attention is in the body, sensations in the body. Okay. Yeah. That's closer to I am. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't even know what the I am is, so. I am, sir, more affirmations about yourself. That's the whole positivity thing, again. I think that if we were starting off with a blank slate, then those kind of positive affirmations would probably be more effective. But when you consider that you've been living for, you know, however many decades of and you've been getting all these impressions, you know, from other people and your own thoughts about yourself. You know, it ends up getting a, a lot of momentum. So, you know, it may take more than just, you know, the occasional uh, affirmation to turn that around. But to me, that's kind of the definition of sleep is that these things that have been printed on you just kind of run automatically and they have a considerable amount of momentum. So that's also why the definition of sleep but also a little bit of an answer to why it persists is because it does have this long history to it. Yes, very long. (laughs) Very long history and lots of momentum. 